0: Well, many of you know that our family was hit with COVID last week, and I just want to thank all of you for praying for our family and caring for us. Uh, what I think Kelly and I will remember about our first battle with COVID is not so much the, the symptoms that we experienced, but how much we felt loved and, and supported by, by you, our church. Uh, we, so many people sent meals, brought food and, and groceries to our house, uh, just loved on us, during our illness, that uh, we had to start turning down help. So thank you for your kindness uh, to us. In a way, uh, you made it almost feel good to be sick. So, um, so I know that's odd to say, but it's very true. I'm also very grateful for Michael, who filled in for me last Sunday, and Pastor Stephen, who taught my Sunday school class. So it is, it's just good to be back this morning, though. Our whole family is happy to be here. And uh, as we consider God's word today, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14, We're going to be in verses 27 through 42 today. Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 42. We are returning to our exposition through the gospel of Mark for the rest of this month. Okay, as you're turning there, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 14. Beginning in verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night... Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God. May he impress its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Please be seated. No one likes to be described as weak. From a young age, we are taught by society to flex our muscles. Most of you probably have a, a picture yourself, of yourself as a young boy or girl trying to, to show off your strength. You know, or maybe if you were like me, a fairly skinny Asian kid, uh, you might have a few pictures of yourself in your teens in a t-shirt with your friends, with your, with your arms crossed. You know, the little trick, hands behind the biceps, kind of pushing them out a little bit to make them look a little bit bigger than they are. You know, we we all want to seem stronger than we are. Even celebrities who might exude strength or attractiveness do this. Some have admitted to doing push-ups, you know, right until the final moment before they, they shoot a scene in order to get that swole, muscular look on film. Today, we flex in other ways as well. We carefully glue a, a veneer of respectability onto our social media profiles. We often want to just seem like we have it together. We, we portray strength. But the reality is usually far from that. You know, underneath our digital veneer, we feel our life actually feels probably more like particle board, filled with chips filled with ugly voids. We're accustomed to playing up our accomplishments, putting on makeup, telling others that we're doing fine, emphasizing our positives. We don't like to expose our weaknesses. Instead, we we try to cover them up or compensate for them. But the truth is that we are all weak people. And, And that's why the passage that we read from mark just now should resonate with you it is a passage that reveals the many weaknesses of Jesus' disciples despite their protestations to the contrary it is a passage that reveals their shortcomings it is the the kind of passage that can be uncomfortable for us to grapple with because it may just hit a little too close to home it's one of those mirror passage passages in the bible shows us our our flaws in in ways that just aren't attractive. This part of Mark's gospel reveals that despite even the best of intentions, the disciples of Jesus just can't get the job done on their own. We're we're not strong enough. We, We may flex, we may posture, we may try to cover up or compensate for our shortcomings, but sometimes we just come up short. But the good news that Mark sets alongside this hard reality is that though we may be weak, we have a Savior who shows us how to be strong. As disciples, we have our shortcomings, but fortunately, we have a Savior who is always up to the the task. And so this morning, I want you to really consider your weakness. But I also want you to look to the Savior's strength. Now, it's been a couple months since the last time we were in Mark, so let me just remind you that we are nearing the end of Jesus' life on earth. This is his last week. This is actually the night before his death. And he has been making preparations all week for his death. In the previous section of Mark 14, Jesus had one last supper with his disciples. And at that meal, he revealed that he would be betrayed by one of them. Our passage today comes on the heels of that declaration. And Jesus knew that he was about to be betrayed. So in the last few hours before his impending arrest, he decided to take his disciples away in order to pray in the garden of Gethsemane. We're going to follow Jesus and his disciples into that garden. But I want us to do so from two different perspectives. First, we're going to read the story and focus on the disciples, and then we'll review it again and focus on Jesus. And I want us to read our passage that way because there are some striking contrasts between Jesus and the disciples in this account. And by seeing these disparities, hopefully you will understand more clearly the difference between living a life of weakness and living according to the strength that God supplies. Okay, so let's begin by considering the weakness of the disciples, the weakness of the disciples. First, we see in verses 27 and 28 that the disciples were lacking in faith. They were lacking in faith. After finished, or after having finished their Passover meal with the singing of a hymn, And Jesus said to his disciples in verse 27, you will all fall away. Now, that's probably not what they were expecting to hear, but Jesus knew that his disciples weren't yet ready to face the challenges that were ahead. And this is because their faith in him wasn't yet fully developed. Just a few days back, prior, a few days prior, back in uh, chapter 11, verse 22, Jesus had told them to have faith in God, because their faith was still lacking. In Mark's gospel, we see evidence of this over and over again. The disciples didn't fully accept Jesus' predictions about his death. They were preoccupied with their own positions of, of greatness. They lacked the right perspective. They lacked a, a settled faith in Jesus and, and what he had come to accomplish. It was this lack of total faith that would lead them to Falling away from Him. Now, now, when Jesus said, "You will all fall away," He wasn't talking about falling away permanently. Their abandonment of Jesus would be temporary. Theirs wasn't a a willful, premeditated desertion. They weren't like Judas, who had actively planned to betray the Lord. Instead, these disciples would simply succumb to external pressures. Jesus went on to quote from Zechariah 13:7. 7 and verse 27. He said, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus was indicating that he was the ultimate shepherd Zechariah wrote about. He would be struck in punishment and his people would be scattered just like the people of Israel were scattered when, they, when God struck their leaders as a form of punishment back in Zechariah's day. As Zechariah writes in in his book, this was necessary to refine God's people before the day that he would redeem them. God would would strike the shepherd of his people, causing the sheep to scatter, but they would be regathered again because they were still his sheep. And that's what Jesus implied in verse 28. He said, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Jesus would be struck, but he wouldn't stay down forever. He would be raised up and go before his disciples to Galilee to meet them there again. I want you to understand that Jesus was not dealing with a group of disciples who didn't have any faith. They had enough faith to eventually be restored to Jesus. But, but at this moment, they still lacked the faith they needed to keep from falling away from him. Their abandonment was a sin of weakness, not necessarily one of intentionality. They they didn't set out to turn on Jesus, but nevertheless, they would fail when put to the test. External pressures would cause them to falter. Isn't this a lot like us? Don't we also have a faith that is often lacking like this? As as Christians, we don't usually set out to sin. We, We don't wake up in the morning and tell ourselves, I've planned to sin against God today. You know, this is exactly how I am going to fail him today. It doesn't happen like that. But, but because we aren't actively trusting in the Lord, we often find ourselves in situations where we are tempted to sin, and we do. We find ourselves tempted to cut corners because we aren't actively placing our trust in the Lord who honors hard work with integrity despite the results We find ourselves giving into sexual sin because we aren't actively believing that God's plan for sexuality is good. We find ourselves getting angry when something doesn't go our way because we've trusted in our own strength rather than in the Lord's. When we fall away from God or turn from Him, it's because our faith in Him is fundamentally lacking. We don't believe what He says, we we don't fully trust Him, we've got our own thoughts about things. That's what happened to the disciples. They had not fully embraced Jesus' teaching that he was going to die soon. They were still caught up with false visions of imminent glory at his right hand on earth. And they were eventually scattered because they lacked faith. That's the first weakness we see in these disciples. They would fall away because they were lacking in faith. Second, they were full of pride. The disciples were weak because they were lacking in faith. And because they were full of pride. In verse 29, we we get to hear from Peter. Uh, Jesus predicted that his disciples would fall away, but Peter wasn't having it. He said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. Typical Petrine presumption. Peter was spiritually proud. And and notice that not only did he not accept Jesus' words, but he actually thought he was better than the other disciples. They might fall but not me. I'll stand by you, Jesus. You got a friend in me. You can count on me like one, two, three. I'll be there. But Jesus knew the truth. And he, he said to Peter, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But, but Peter was still wasn't convinced. Mark writes that. He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter was trying to relay to Jesus how how devoted he was to him. His statement was no doubt genuine. It was no doubt heartfelt. He was was even willing to to die with Jesus. But pride can manifest itself even in very spiritual claims. Because behind this kind of pride lies the fact that we still think we know better than God. That was Peter's problem. It wasn't just him. It was all the disciples. They all said the same. They all thought they knew better than God. They were all full of pride. And, and again, that's just like us. So often we feel like we know better than God. Maybe we are self-aware enough to realize that we couldn't run the whole world. But sometimes we feel like we might do things a, a little bit differently than God in our own little sphere of influence, don't we? We think that if we were God, we would just give ourselves that position or, or that relationship. We would grant that healing. We, we wouldn't have designed us to have those particular feelings. We would get more, rid of more crime and, and bring more justice into this world. We, we often think that, that we know better than God. This was Peter's folly. It was the disciples' folly. And it's our folly. We can fall into the trap of thinking that we no better than our maker. We think we're stronger than we are, but we don't realize that we are actually weak because we have been blinded to true reality by our pride. The disciples were weak because they were lacking in faith. They were weak because they were full of pride. And they were weak because they were inclined toward comfort. They were inclined toward comfort. And we see this in in verses 32 to the end of this passage in verse 42. In verse 32, we see that Jesus led his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. From the other gospels, we learn that this was across the, the Kidron Valley on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. John says that it was a garden. The word Gethsemane actually means olive press. So many people believe that Gethsemane was a small walled garden with olive trees in it and also an olive press there. John tells us that this was a place where Jesus often went with his disciples. He says that in John eighteen two. It was likely because Jesus enjoyed the opportunity to get away here to pray, for that's what he planned to do at this particular time. As Jesus and his crew arrived, he first told eight of his disciples to take a seat, Uh, maybe near the entrance to the garden, while he went away to pray. And then Jesus singled out his, his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and took them with him further into the garden. It was at this point that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34 says, And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. What did Jesus tell Peter, James, and John to do? He told them to watch. He wanted them to stay alert. Per- perhaps he sensed that Judas was, was coming at any time, so he wanted the disciples to keep an eye out. But he didn't say that explicitly. More likely, he sensed the spiritual battle that he was already undergoing and called on his friends to stay spiritually alert, prepared for the crisis ahead. He was, he was calling those closest to him to be his spiritual companions and supporters during this time of need. We, we get a glimpse into what Jesus was going through in verses 35 and 36, which we're going to look at more in a moment. For now, I want you to stay focused on the disciples, though. Jesus asked them to watch. But in verse 37, we learn that when he came to them, he found them sleeping. And and he said to to Peter, Simon. He used Peter's old name. We don't know for sure why Jesus did this, but we do know that Simon wasn't living up to his new name as the rock here. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? You can can sense the, the disappointment In Jesus' words, he had asked his closest friends to stay spiritually alert on his behalf during a time of great turmoil for him. They had seen his his distress. He, He had even told them he was sorrowful. He had told them that he felt near death. And it's very likely he was close enough to them when he prayed to his father that they were still able to hear him. But despite all of that, they couldn't stay awake for their Lord. Their physical weakness made them prioritize comfort and rest above active service to him. Jesus told them in in verse 38, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, Jesus reminded his disciples to stay spiritually alert, but he also added the command to pray. Why? Well, he gives the reason in verse 38, to avoid giving into temptation. Jesus knew that his disciples would soon face a time of great spiritual sifting that would test their loyalty to him. He knew they needed to stay awake spiritually, and so he called them to watch, but he also called them to pray. Watching and praying go together. To watch is to engage our human faculties. It's a human responsibility. It's being alert. But to pray... It is to call upon God to act. It's a form of divine dependence. If we were to watch only, it would, it would breed a dangerous form of self-confidence. If we were to pray only, we, we might draw, be drawn toward an unhealthy spiritual fanaticism. Instead, Jesus told his disciples to do both, to watch and pray, to actively engage our human faculties, But in a spirit of dependence upon the Lord, given the spiritual battle that we are all in. The reason he gave was at the end of of verse 38. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, our, our human will may resist, may want to resist temptation. But sometimes our will just isn't enough. Our human bodies sometimes just are too weak and frail to carry out the desires of our minds. So with this exhortation, Jesus again went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. Now, don't get me wrong, these guys were legitimately tired. But that wasn't a sufficient excuse. And they knew it. Mark writes that they did not know what to answer him. They had no good reason to offer for their lack of watchfulness in prayer. They had been caught prioritizing comfort over the commands of their Lord. And what's even worse is that this happened one more time. In verse 41, it says, And when he came to them the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The disciples kept on falling asleep. Even though Jesus repeatedly warned them not to, they slept because they were limited. Perhaps they couldn't stay awake because they had just had a long meal. It was a long night. But if they had understood just how important this night was, they would have stayed awake. If they had really heard what Jesus had been trying to tell them, if they, they had just taken seriously Jesus' commands to him to them, they might have stayed alert. But they let their tiredness trump their desire to obey Jesus' commands. They had all said they wouldn't fall away, but that was just talk. They weren't as strong as they thought. This isn't to say that sleep isn't important. We're limited creatures. Our need for sleep is a sign of our dependence upon God. To not sleep enough is often a sign of pride, thinking you can and, and should do more than God has allowed you to do. The only one who doesn't need sleep is God, and God does not require of you more than he gives you the capacity to do. So sleep is something that he has given to us and ordained for our good. That's not the issue here, though. In this particular moment in time, with the weight of the sins of the world hanging in the balance, Mark indicates to us that the disciples could have stayed awake, but they were simply too weak in their flesh to do so. They were more concerned about their comfort than obeying the Lord's commands. And this is the danger of living a life of comfort. When we live for comfort, we unconsciously train ourselves to give into our physical desires at the expense of our spiritual needs. We allow our spiritual muscles to atrophy. That's why it's so important to watch and pray as a believer, to be in a constant state of spiritual readiness and dependence, aware of the spiritual situation, the spiritual battle that is around us. So in this passage, we are confronted with the weakness of Jesus' disciples. They were lacking in faith, they were full of pride, and they were inclined toward comfort. Their weakness led to disobedience, and it made them ineffective in living faithfully for their Lord. Now that's what I wanted you to notice in our our first pass through the story. Now as we head into the garden again, For a second time, I want you to focus with me on Jesus. We've seen the weakness of the disciples. Let's now consider the strength of our Savior. The strength of our Savior. While while the disciples were lacking in faith, Jesus was full of trust. Jesus was full of trust. Look with me again at verse 27. Jesus knew that his disciples would fall away. He he saw that Scripture was going to be fulfilled. He trusted in the Word of God. He trusted the prophet Zechariah's words. But notice also that he had complete confidence that the scattering of his friends would not be the end of their story. Again, he said in verse 28 After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Though he knew he would be struck, Though, though Jesus was anticipating the agony of the cross, he did not lose sight of the resurrection hope that would soon follow. Jesus knew he had confidence that his father would raise him from the dead. It was his complete trust in his father's plan that allowed Jesus to endure the dark hours that were coming. Even though his disciples would abandon them, even even though he knew that Peter would deny him three times, Jesus did not abandon them because he trusted in his father's plan. And Jesus was full of trust. He trusted in the word of God. He trusted in his father's plan. And that allowed him to save the course even when those around him would abandon it. Not only was Jesus full of trust, but he was also ready to submit. And we see the strength of our Savior not only in his trust of the Lord, but his willingness to submit to the Lord. Jesus was ready to submit. What is is most striking to me about the Garden of Gethsemane, is the the humility and the humanity of Jesus that we see in this place. In Gethsemane, Jesus was confronted with the emotional and psychological horror of what was to come at the cross. And Gethsemane shows us how much Jesus was affected by this in his humanity. He really felt it. The language in verses 33 and 34, is emphatic. Jesus wasn't just distressed when he entered the garden with his friends. He was in extreme distress. He was greatly distressed. He was troubled. Verse 34 tells us that he was so full of sorrow that, that it almost killed him. His sorrow was so deep that it, that it threatened to crush the life within him. If you have ever felt that your sorrow was so great that you felt like your life just might end. Jesus knows that feeling. How could Jesus, God himself, feel this way? Because in this moment, as as he anticipated bearing the weight of the sins of the world, and as he thought about being forsaken by and alienated from the God he had lived so fully and perfectly for, he shuddered at the horror of that prospect. He sensed the coming spiritual torture of being made sin for us. This kind of sorrow and distress could could not have come from the simple fear of death or, or the pain of the cross or the anxiety of experiencing the unknown. What Jesus was distraught over was the idea that he would be separated from his father. And, and the stress of all this caused him to just fall on the ground. Luke Luke twenty two forty one tells us that he fell on his knees. Matthew 26, 39 tells us he fell on his face during this time. Luke also tells us that, he, that his sweat was like drops of blood. And he prayed in, in verse 35 that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He prayed that this hour, this divinely appointed time of his impending death would pass. Notice what he said in verse 36. He said, Abba, Father. It's a term of intimacy, closeness. It shows us how tight the relationship was between father and son. He said, Abba, all things are possible for you. Again, he was fully confident in his father. He trusted in his sovereign power and ability, so he asked him to remove this cup from me. That cup is the cup of God's wrath. Throughout scripture, we find the image of a cup associated with God's judgment. It is a foaming cup full of God's anger over Sid. It is a a staggering cup that will come upon all the wicked of the earth. Jesus knew that cup was about to be poured out on him and He didn't want to go through with it. Now you might wonder, didn't Jesus know that this was God's plan from the beginning? Didn't he agree to it? Did did he really think there was another way? What you have to understand is that in this moment in Gethsemane, what we are given is a glimpse of Jesus' humanity. Throughout the Gospels, we see both his divinity and his humanity at different junctures. And Jesus is the one who sleeps on a boat in a storm, but he's also the one who, who calms the storm with a word. He is man, but, but he is also God. And the fact that these two natures, without confusion or, or change or division or separation, exist in his one person is still mysterious to us, but both exist in Jesus. Sometimes Jesus' divine nature comes through more clearly in the gospel narratives. Other times, we see his human nature. This is one of those times where we see the human side of Jesus. This is where we see the will of his human nature come into conflict with the will of his divine nature. His, His divine nature wasn't pleading with God to change his mind. We know that the Father and the Son and the Spirit were in full agreement as to the way that their plan of redemption would unfold. But Jesus' request here bubbles up from his humanity and and it cries out to his Father with a genuine ask. And yet, yet Jesus shows us that even in his humanity, he was ready to submit to the divine will and plan. He didn't end his prayer with remove this cup from me. His prayer continued on with yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was ready to submit to his father's will, even though it meant extreme sorrow and distress for him as man. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5 right now. Everyone turn there, Hebrews chapter 5. The author of Hebrews writes about this very moment in Gethsemane. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. He writes, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There's a lot of truth packed in those few verses. Did you get that? I don't know if you got that. The author of Hebrews says that although Jesus was a son, he was the son of God, he still needed to learn obedience through his sufferings as a man. This prayer, these conversations with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane were the climax of Jesus learning obedience as a man. And in so doing, by passing this test, Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, was made perfect. And he thus became the source of salvation because he then was able to ultimately obey at the cross. Uh, we often say that Jesus lived a perfect life and he died as our substitute. Okay? This is the culmination of Jesus living that perfect life of obedience as a man. Was he tempted to abandon the cross? Yes. Did he feel the weight of, of bearing the sins of the world acutely? Yes. Did he ever feel close to dying because of the sorrow he experienced in this world? Yes. Can Jesus sympathize with you in your weaknesses? Yes. But Jesus was tempted and did not sin. Even in the garden, when the temptation seemed greatest, he entrusted himself to his father in prayer and was ready to submit to the divine will. What a humble, humble savior that we have. He didn't think only of himself. Jesus, Jesus cut so sharply against the grain of modern society. We live in a time when the individual is exalted. When our personal feelings and desire beckon to be heard and received. We live in an age where personal choice and and expression is, is so valued and protected that we have forgotten how to live collectively. We live in a morass of confusion because there is no greater authority. There is no greater narrative other than what suits our personal feelings or our sexual desires or our subjective revisionist histories. But Jesus shows us that strength and salvation do not come through the exaltation of individual wishes or thoughts. But rather it comes to the submission of the will of someone greater. The will of God himself. The one who has always had the collective interest of humanity at the center of his divine mind and heart. And when he was tempted most, Jesus did not give in to his human and finite longings. Instead, he turned in prayer so that he might be strengthened, not to do his will, but to do God's will. Prayer is a means for us to accept God's will, not alter it. Prayer is a means for us to to receive God's will, not, not revise it. And when we approach our lives and our, and our prayer lives this way, with a ready submission to the will to do the will of our Lord, we, we move from weakness and sorrow and distress to strength and contentment and security. Notice that this was a prayer that Jesus needed to pray multiple times. Verse 39 tells us that again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And it's implied that he did this a third time in verse 31. Jesus prayed again and again in the garden because he knew the difficulty of what was ahead for him. But his ultimate submission to the will of God gave him the strength that he needed to accomplish his task. It was Adam's rebellion in the garden that brought death into the world. But it was Jesus's, the second Adam's, submission in the garden, that would bring life. Rebellion against God is a certain path toward death, but submission to his will, not ours, is the way to life. Lastly and briefly, I want you to notice that after Jesus prayed, he was no longer sorrowful. He was resolved. He was resolved to suffer for us in accordance with God's will for him. Not only was he full of trust and ready to submit, but he was also resolved to suffer. And Jesus never pursued a life of comfort. He never put his physical desires above his spiritual needs. So we find in verse 41 that after he came to his disciples a third time and found them sleeping, he said, It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas had arrived. Jesus had been betrayed. His arrest was imminent. His disciples would soon flee from him. The cross was around the corner. Nothing was getting easier. But Jesus was ready for it. His prayer in the garden had strengthened him for what was coming. He was resolved to suffer. We needed Jesus to pray in that garden of Gethsemane because we needed him to go to the cross despite the complete and abject horror of it all. In this passage, Jesus shows us not only that he is the strong savior we need for our sins, but he also exemplifies how we are to overcome weakness in in our own lives. Every one of us is weak. We, We don't always have the faith we need. We are constantly struggling with pride. We love comfort far too much. Well, we've been reminded today that we are to pray in the midst of our weakness, trusting and submitting to our Lord, willing to walk the hard paths of life if necessary. Peter, who was there with Jesus in the garden, came to understand this for himself. He, he wrote this to believers in 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, Christian, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We are to follow in the steps of Jesus. We can and should embrace our weakness, not trying to cover it up, not trying to downplay it or ignore it, but we should compensate for it in the best way, by taking our weaknesses to the Lord in prayer. Pray for God's help when you feel tempted to give in to your fleshly desires. Pray pray for God's help when you sense you're valuing your comfort too much. Pray when you're struggling to do something hard that you know is right. Whenever you might be weak in your faith, wherever you might be weak in your faith, realize that Satan, who's described as the strong man in Scripture, he wants to keep you that way. But you have won who is much stronger? Be strengthened through your own weakness by turning to your strong Savior in prayer, just as He did in His time of temptation. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful merciful Savior we have in your Son, Jesus. We thank you that he shows us how we should live in relation to you even in the most distressing circumstances. Jesus reminds us of the need to turn to you in prayer and submit to your will. We know your will is perfect and it was It was your will that sent Jesus to the cross that allowed him to experience that great separation from you, but it was for our eternal benefit, and we are forever grateful. Thank you for giving us such a strong Savior. We need him because we are weak. But Lord, you do not leave us in our weakness. You give us access to your strength in prayer. And so help us to be men and women, boys and girls, who go to you constantly, Praying, watching, and praying that we might not enter into temptation and that we might do your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.